Well, good morning. I am excited as we are starting a brand new series. Um, Cole and I have been teaching through something that a mentor has taught us, and that is continuing as we go, but we're changing perspectives now. So uh, while things uh, are going to be different visually, we are still marching our way through the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me, but as I look at the news, it seems like all I hear is bad news. Uh, Facebook news, I, I don't get real news anymore, but on Facebook, if something happens, I, that's where I see it, and it just seems like bad news. But this morning, I want to actually give you some good news this morning, and literally good news, we're going to be talking about the gospel again. Um, and that gospel is very clearly this. It's the message that God loves us so much that he became a man so that he himself could pay the price for the sins of the entire world. Thus, it would make a way for you and for me to connect with God eternally. And that's the gospel. And everywhere that that good news has gone and has taken root, Changes has happened, have happened in the lives and also the culture of that area. Um, because Jesus is the king. That's what we've been talking about since January. He's the king that brings hope to a dark world. And beyond that, Jesus, the king, he also brings freedom. Wherever this gospel goes, that's what happens. He brings us freedom. Um, wherever there are in the world spiritual chains, Jesus has a message, the gospel, that will impact those chains and be and bring change in that area. So everywhere that the gospel traveled and took root in history, the world changed for the better. As the gospel arrived and took root, then uh, there began there came new freedoms, there came new equality, there came new equity. So with the impact of the gospel, people began to experience different lives. Um, they began to experience more discretionary time. They began to experience more, in many cases, discretionary money. Um, in, in many of those cases, women uh, got more rights and they got increased equality. And simply put, everywhere that people have embraced the gospel, it didn't just make for a better life, it made them live better lives. And as a result, life got better. There was an increase in wealth. There was an increase in contentment, equality. I guess we could just say, eventually, wherever that gospel landed, things got better. And in some cases, it got great. The message of Jesus and his path to the cross, which is, that's what we're going to be talking about now, all the way through March, his path to the cross, um, it changes absolutely everything. Now, I want to describe something. I hope I don't make this confusing. I, I'm going to try to describe to you in a Harley-type way, in a thumbnail-type way, a lot of history. Very quickly. It's not going to take long. So I'm going to summarize. Yeah, see, I already put someone to sleep. I'm so sorry. I just mentioned history, and people just went, boom, and they're out. So, But I promise this is going to be quick. It's going to be short and in a Harley way. Um, 
Well, I shouldn't say that because that's usually not short, right? <laughs> so it's going to be in someone else's way. Cliff notes if you're from uh, Gen X. Um, so, uh, so the world back on topic. Everything just got longer <laughs> because of all that. Uh, the the world progressively got better everywhere the gospel landed, all the way from history. So we're talking all the way back to the first century. When Jesus walked the earth and then he left and he's with God the Father today. So as the church started, as the gospel went out, starting with the first century, as people began to experience some of these extra results of the gospel, some of these freedoms that came, as they began to experience that, eventually new chains emerged, different chains, sneaky chains. Chains that the first century believers did not see coming, caught them off guard. And there are chains that these new followers of Christ actually put upon themselves. And these chains, which didn't appear to be bad things, these chains became their new normal. So because of this freedom they were beginning to experience um, because of the gospel, and because of all the love that was moving around the culture because of Christ's followers, and because of all of this humbling of oneself and, and putting others before them, the evil one stepped in with some brand new chains that he designed, I guess. And with all of this hope that was being experienced with following Jesus, all around the Roman world, slowly, things changed. The believers began to get very comfortable. They began to get spiritually lazy. So in the first century, and centuries following that, hundreds and hundreds of years following that, the center of Christianity was kind of you know, around Jerusalem all the way to Rome. That was the center. That's where it was all going down. And after centuries of the Christian center being around Jerusalem all the way through Rome and the Mediterranean, the center of Christianity began to move to another place. And as we look at history, it may be because the Christ followers who were living in the center of Christianity, from Jerusalem to the Roman Empire, that central part there, maybe they began to get lazy and spiritually apathetic. They began to get comfortable spiritually. And so after hundreds and hundreds of years of the center of Christianity being around Jerusalem and Rome, the center of Christianity began to move to a whole other place. It began to move to northern Europe. It began to move to the, uh, the England area. And there, the new center of Christianity landed. It had left Jerusalem and Rome and landed in other countries far away. 
And it appears that as it landed in in, uh, Northern Europe and in England, as it landed there, it was a dark place. And the gospel did what the gospel does. And lives began to change. People began to change. The culture began to change. And they were experiencing also new freedoms. Things were going well. And it appears that there too, the Christ followers were starting to get comfortable after centuries and centuries of the center of Christianity being in Northern Europe and England. And it appears that those believers began to get a little spiritually lazy. And once again, the center of Christianity, and we could even say the gospel itself, seemed to move to another place because the believers began to get apathetic. This time, it appears that it moved to the Americas, specifically North America. And it landed there in North America, and there it became the new center of Christianity for centuries and centuries and centuries. It rested there, and it did what the gospel does. It moved into people's lives, and it made changes in their lives, and things got better. The dark became light. But over the course of time, it appears that we in North America also have grown spiritually lazy and apathetic. And Christianity, it appears, is once again the center of it, America, where it has rested for centuries now. See, the gospel goes in and transforms lives, changes lives, and there, when it appears The Christ followers get lazy and comfortable. It appears the center moves. Where is it going this time? Well, I don't know. We're yet to see. But it does appear to be moving away from the apathetic spiritual condition of North America. Now, that's a very simplified version of the history of the church, and the center of the Christian world and the gospel. But I hope I didn't make that confusing. I hope what you understand in that is this, that when people get apathetic, when we as followers of Jesus begin to rest in our comfort, it appears the center of Christianity moves, the gospel takes flight and goes somewhere. Where is it going? I I don't know. If you look around, uh, perhaps it's headed to the Southern Hemisphere. Maybe it's headed to Latin America. Maybe it's headed to Southern Asia. Maybe it's headed to Southern Africa. And when I say that, I mean the center of the gospel, the center of the Christian world. So what I've described has been happening for thousands and thousands of years since the beginning, since it all started. Because with the freedom that the gospel brings, it also comes with some baggage. 
And it appears that that baggage is power, and that baggage is wealth, and that baggage is time, that baggage is equality, that baggage is satisfaction, that baggage is security. And the message of the gospel in that setting begins to change. It's changed from a message of hope, a message of freedom, a message of salvation, and it becomes a message of holding and keeping, trying to hang on to our wealth, our power, and our position. You see, the pure, the radical message of the gospel That radical message that says that we have sinned and that we are separated from God and that all that will save us is God's grace and His renewal, all of that gets pushed out by our comfort and our convenience and our selfishness. And history tells us that over a long period of time, the gospel changes from that radical message to this nice, safe religion where people are just trying to do good so they can look good. And when that happens, it appears that the center of the gospel leaves that country and moves somewhere else. You see, following the king, as we have talked about Jesus, the king, since January, following that king is one thing. But following the king when I am comfortable and following that king when I realize it's going to cost me something actually to do it, it's at that point that we, as people who claim to be followers of Christ, begin to say, no, thank you. No, thank you. So as we pick up this new series today, as we're following Christ to the cross, we literally are on the heels of what we have been teaching since January. We're just in the next step. We're moving in that direction as we follow Mark and and the disciples of Jesus. And as we talked last week, something critical changed. Jesus went a hundred percent in the other direction of where the disciples and the followers of Jesus thought that he was going. It is not what they expected. They were looking for a king who was going to sit on the throne, and from that throne he was going to rule as King David did, and he was going to overthrow the Romans. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus told them over and over again, it wasn't sinking in. Finally, it was beginning to possibly sink in a little bit. Jesus tells them that his purpose is is much more humbling than sitting on a throne. That he actually came to be rejected and that he was going to sin, starting with verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way in the Gospels, who parallel this, tell us, a couple other pieces of information, that this isn't just a man, that this is a young man, and he was rich, and he was powerful. Okay? That's important. So this man runs up to Jesus, and here's what happened. He knelt down, and he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as he ran up, it's obvious to the disciples that are with Jesus that this This dude has some cash. He's got some money, and he's got some street cred. He's got some power. It's obvious to them. And because of what they had been taught, 
in religion growing up, they, ha- they had this idea that if someone has money and power and they are a Jew, then that means by default that God was blessing them. They were doing things right. They were getting a blessing from God. That was their idea. Didn't happen to be the truth, but it was their idea. So they see this powerful young man with money, and they're like, this guy, this guy, he's got it all together. He's being blessed by God. And so obviously it seems that he was excited to see Jesus, and here's what happens, verse 18. Um, truly good. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. All right, so Jesus is kind of confronting him, verse 19. But Jesus says, to answer your question, you know the commandments, so he's going to answer the question. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. Now Jesus knew, he knew that this young man already knew all those things. I mean, all the Jews did, especially this guy. He really knew that. Jesus knew that he knew that. So this had been taught to him since he could speak. He already knew this. This was not new, which leads us to ask the question, why would the young man ask Jesus a question that he already knew the answer to? If he knew the answer to the question, why would he ask Jesus that question? And here's all I can think of. Because even though he knew the answer based upon his education, he knew deep inside of his heart something was missing. Something was missing. Because anyone, absolutely anyone who's trying to work, who's trying to earn their way to God, who's trying to prove their goodness, I'm good enough for God to accept me because I've kept all of these rules, they all have a sinking feeling deep, deep down inside of them, a feeling that says, I'm missing something. I'm overlooking something. What if not checked a box that I was supposed to check. We might call this young man the most successful guy in town at the moment. And yet, with all of that success, he is seeking out some rabbis, some gurus, some some people who might be able to answer that question for him. He's trying to find out. If there is anything anyone can tell him who's an expert so he can make sure he does everything that is required. He wants to answer the question, what am I missing? I want to to be with God eternally in a real place called heaven. What am I missing? I know, I feel it, I'm missing something. I I, I will do anything that that I discover that you can tell me that I must do. Whatever change has to happen, I will do it. I just need someone to tell me, what is it? What do I have to do? And the answer that Jesus is getting ready to give him is going to take all the air out of his lungs. And I want to be honest. By the end of today, it might take some air out of our lungs as well. Jesus is going to answer that question specifically. But before he does, Jesus says, why 
Why are you walking up to a stranger? He didn't know Jesus. Why are you walking up to a stranger? Someone that you just think is a rabbi, you just think is just another teacher, and yet you're calling him good. And and Jesus calls him out on that. He's, He's saying only God is good. You have no idea that I'm God. So why are you coming up to a clue, throwing that misunderstanding about what is really good and what is really bad? What is going to be okay and what is not going to be okay? Jesus is like saying, you, 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 you have a wrong understanding of all of this. And oh, we're getting ready to find out just how wrong that understanding is. But then Jesus gives him the list that we just read in verse 19. He gives them the list of all these do nots. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't don't steal anything. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't dishonor your parents. To which the young man, I can only imagine, probably proudly responds in verse 20. He says, teacher, the man replied, I have. I have obeyed all these things, all these commandments since I was young. In other words, I've checked all those boxes. Now, Jesus doesn't argue with him. Jesus doesn't point out where he probably has not kept all those things. He just keeps going. Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Now, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Jesus goes on, there is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Okay, deep breath. We're going to lean into this just a little bit. Jesus tells this guy, of course you know. You can't kill people. You can't can't cheat. You can't have sexual experiences outside of your relationship with your wife. You know all of this. You can't steal. All of these things you know. And you know that you have to honor your parents. Of course you know that. You know all of that. I know that you know that. You know that you know that. But if you just keep repenting of these bad things, that's just going to make you religious. If you just keep repenting of these broken laws, that's just going to make you more religious. But if you want eternal life, which Jesus is is really telling him and having this conversation with him because Jesus knows he wants eternal life. That's what he said to Jesus. And he knows that's eating away at him on the inside. That he's checked all of these boxes, but it's still eating away. And Jesus, it's as if he's saying, listen, If you want to lose that haunting feeling that you have deep inside, that feeling that something's missing, you haven't checked all the boxes, no matter how hard you've worked, there's still something you have to do. If you want to lose that feeling, if you still haven't found the way to get all the stains out of your life, he said, it is going to involve repentance but you're going to have to repent of how you have been using your gifts and using your success and using your power and using your money and using your security. 
all of these good things that are in your life, you're going to have to repent about how you have been using them. And I'll be honest, for us, for me, this is where it gets tough. <clears throat> so let me try to explain better what I'm trying to explain. The ways we use good things in our lives. And you may be like me, because I find myself a whole lot like this kid. I have, we probably together have a habit of using things like success and freedom and influence and power and money to hide our current imperfections from other people. We use good things like success. Nothing wrong with success. Nothing wrong with money. But we use those things to make us feel better about ourselves. I have a shopping cart on my phone right now that is full. I haven't hit buy yet. I want to really bad. I'm not saying I won't. But when I think about why, why would I actually go ahead and buy that, if I really think about it, then I have to be honest with myself. I feel like I'm using it to feel better about something else. And usually what I'm trying to feel better about is something deep, deep, inside of me, my imperfection. We use good things like success to make us feel better about ourselves. We use good things like money, nothing wrong with money, to make us feel better about ourselves. We use things like influence to make us feel better about ourselves. Students, let me talk to you all for just a moment. I'm always talking to you, but very specifically. Students, we use things like our social media friends list and our followers list to make us feel better about something that's broken in here. And the more we have, the better we feel. If we don't get the reactions we want when we post something, the worse we feel. Because what do we say in our head? We're saying, oh, they really know. I, I really am of no count. I really am not worth their responding. I really am. They know. They know. They know. And parents, we do the same thing. We do the same thing with social media. We do the same thing with money. We do the same thing with influence. We do the same thing with power. We use it to make us feel better about something on the inside because we really feel so bad if you're anything like me and ugly and deformed on the inside that we use good things and we use our talents and we use our abilities and we use our charm to get people to do what we want them to do, which ultimately what we want them to do is to make us feel better about ourselves. We use good things and we've done good things to even make God think better of us. To make God think that we're okay 
And if we do enough good things for God, then he has to answer that prayer. He has to do that thing that we ask. Why? Because we deserve it. We've done good things for God. But Jesus is telling this guy, you have put your faith and your trust in these good things. And that has actually pushed you further away from God, not closer to God. You've acknowledged God on some level, but he's not your savior. Huh? Not in this scenario. And Jesus is going to help him understand all of this. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, young man, I want you to imagine your life with no money and no inheritance and no servants and no nice house and no security. I want you to imagine that all of that is gone and all you have left is me. Can you live like that? And here's what's worse. You have it now, but I'm asking you to make a choice to get rid of all of it so that all you have left is me. And Jesus, it's like he's saying, would you be willing to do that? And here's how the young man responds in verse 22. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Upon hearing this, he is sad. He is grieved. And we don't really get the intensity of that word sad. We don't really understand the depth of that word as we read it because, yeah, we get sad, right? Well, here's here. let me give you a comparison. That is the very same word. He wasn't just sad. It's the very same word to describe Jesus in the garden right before he's arrested, right before he's tortured, right before he's killed. It's when Jesus is so sad, grieved, so much so that blood is squeezed out of his capillaries and it comes out of his pores, out of his sweat glands. That's the same word to describe what Jesus experienced to what this young man was experiencing and the reaction to Jesus's words. And I think about this, and in some ways it's kind of appropriate because in the garden, Jesus is just hours away from experiencing an ultimate loss himself. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Jesus was going to experience a disconnection, a loss of joy, a loss of his identity on a level that had never happened in all of eternity. In the garden, Jesus knew that he was close to being disconnected from the Father for the very first time in all of eternity. And so when Jesus told this young man that he was going to have to lose his money and his possessions and his power and his position, what this man was being asked to lose, this young man was being asked to lose his identity himself, which perhaps better explains why he grieved so deeply. Because for him, money was his identity. Power was his identity. Influence was his identity. 
Money, power, and influence was for that young man what God the Father was for Jesus. Jesus knowing, I'm getting ready to lose that connection somehow. We can't comprehend that. But that's what Jesus was facing. And for this young man, the loss of money and power and position was truly the loss of himself. Losing his power and his position meant he was losing the only thing he had available to cover up those deep stains that he had on the inside that he knew were there. This is such an important point. It kind of sums up everything we're talking about today. You see, it's one thing to have Jesus as your mentor, but if you want him to be your savior, then you have to give up whatever it is that you've been relying upon to save you. And everyone has something. For this man, it was money and status and power. So my question is, what is it for you? Is it a career? Is it family? Is it family relationships? Is it Is it a relationship with someone else? Is it the way you look physically on the outside? Is it your intelligence? Is it your ability for you? Is it security? Is it money? And here's the point. To follow Jesus always requires repentance. And it's not just repenting of our sins. As we see here with this young man, We have to repent for all those good things that we've had in our lives that we've placed there ahead of God, in God's place. And so if we truly want to get rid of that feeling that something is lacking on the inside, there's only one thing in our lives that can ever fill that God-shaped hole, that God-shaped vacuum in our heart, and that is God. It can't be money, and it can't be our family, and it can't be our success. It can't be our comfort. It cannot be our security. Those are all the things that we have given our heart to. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We've given it to those things. But that status belongs only to God. And here Jesus is being very clear with this young man. He's speaking directly into the life of his soul. This specific man, he knows this man's problem. It's not just his bank accounts. It's not just that. This man's problem is partially too that he feels like he's done good. That he's done a good job up to this point. Even though something's missing, he feels it's missing, but he feels like he's done a pretty good job. And because he's done a pretty good job, there must be something else he can do. Surely it's not God's grace that he needs. There's something else he needs to do. And the hard truth for us this morning It is often our personal goodness that's keeping us away from understanding the cross. 
disciples. After this young man walks away, verse 23, Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I always have to pause here because I know most of us do not feel rich. I just have to pause. The gospel is to the entire world. And therefore, we have to place our lives on the world stage. And on the world stage, every single one of us in this room are among the most wealthy in the world. And so Jesus is speaking to us, even though we feel like he's not. He's speaking to us wealthy North Americans. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus said this, verse 24, it amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And people, pastors, teachers have debated what Jesus meant by that. And anything they have said other than what Jesus actually said is just wrong. They're missing the whole point. It's not difficult to get into the kingdom of God. It is impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. No, it's not difficult. It is impossible to get into the kingdom of God. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. There is not one box we can check, not one more thing we can do to earn our way in. He said, Jesus said, it is impossible for this young man, and he's saying it's impossible for you, and it is impossible for me to get into heaven. And then in verse 26, the disciples were then astounded. Then who in the world, they said, can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. You can't, he is saying, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Okay, deep breath. We're getting ready to change interactions now. Many of us are saying, ready to leave that. But we're leaving this so that we can go to another interaction that Jesus has a couple chapters later. Now, these things happened really close together because once Jesus landed in Jerusalem for the Passover this last time, everything moved very quickly to the cross. So it's just a couple chapters later, but it's not very far removed from this encounter he had with this young man. But this reminds me, this next encounter reminds me of this one. So we're going to put them together today and talk about this one too. So here's here's what happened. Mark chapter 12. So we're just a couple chapters down the road here. Uh, Verse 28. 
one of the teachers of religious law. So Jesus has just entered Jerusalem to be part of this last Passover before he's actually going to die. He knows this is where it's headed for him. And this happens while he's in Jerusalem. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He re- so you understand something's happened before this. Jesus, uh, he realized that Jesus answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this question is really designed, where we understand in reading the scripture, it's really designed to kind of trap Jesus. All these religious leaders are pretty upset with Jesus. They're trying to trap him. But there is yet something about this man asking the question and this interaction with Jesus that leads us to believe he really did want to hear what Jesus had to say. Now, we have to understand, these people who were teachers of religious law had spent their entire lives looking at the law, all 1,600, uh, uh, not 1,600, all 613 laws, plus all the many uh, laws they had added themselves. And they tried to um, put them in an order, most important, then this one, then this one. So they all had their own personal list. Here's what I think is the most important, and here's how they fall. And he asked Jesus what he thinks. And now Jesus is going to reply in verse 29. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and only, the one and and all. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. So Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, and everyone listening would have known that because all good Jews every single day quoted that to God as a prayer every morning and every evening, twice a day, every single day, without fail. Love God. He's the only God. Love Him with everything about you. And then Jesus now adds another portion. And this comes from Leviticus 19, but Jesus quotes it here in verse 31. The second is equally important, so here we go. He said these two, but he says this is equal. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other command is greater than these. So Jesus has now boiled down all of the law into this, love God and love others. And we have wrestled with that forever. Since we have known that Jesus did that, we've wrestled because we have been wrestling against the law versus love, against truth versus grace. Uh, Here's where we wrestle with that. We argue about, do I hold tighter to the law or do I hold tighter to God's love? Do I do the legal thing or do I do the loving thing? But with all of that tension, we actually miss the point because Jesus isn't picking one of the two commandments above all the other. That's not what he's doing. He isn't picking love above the law. It is so much bigger than that. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is showing that the law is actually fulfilled. All the law is fulfilled by love. Love fulfills the law. And as opposed to the rich young ruler who went away very, very sad, grieving, that's not what happens here. Verse 32, the teacher of religious law replied, Well said, teacher, you have spoken truth by saying there is only one God, no other. 
And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important. So here's, listen, here's how he's understanding. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices required by the law. This young man, this man, I don't know how young he is, this man is admitting to Jesus that these things that are so important to them about how they do the sacrifices and how they fulfill all these laws, they are so important to all of these religious people. The burnt offerings, the sacrifices, everything that's required by the law. And even if they do them really, really well and check all the boxes that they know to check, when they're done, and they have made a great religious effort, all of those things don't ultimately make up for our sins. That's what he's admitting to Jesus. This man is beginning to understand just how impossible it actually is for us to work our way, earn our way, get our way into heaven. It is impossible. It is impossible with the law. We can't measure up no matter how hard we work. And he was realizing that. This religious leader was beginning to grasp grasp something that we just talked about a moment ago. That it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a good man to to truly satisfy the law. And the closer that he is to understanding this, the closer he is to understanding this gospel that he is getting ready to hear when he sees Jesus go to the cross. And my friends, and Cole is telling Stuttgart this today, as I tell us this here. Every time that we begin to look more exclusively at the law and its requirements, always the more self-righteous and religious we become. But when we look at the attitude that Jesus just said is required, that attitude that requires our heart, only then can we begin to understand just how much we must have grace and mercy because we can't do it. And here's how Jesus responds to this man who's beginning to understand. Verse 34, realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Don't miss that. Jesus is saying to this religious leader, he's saying, hey, keep going. Don't stop. You are on the right track. You're moving in the right direction. You are almost there. Can you imagine if Jesus said that to you? If he said, as you were living your day today, he said, you are on the right track. Don't stop. Keep going. You are almost there. That would make the hairs on our arms stand up, on the back of our neck stand up. And I believe that's what it probably did for this Jewish teacher as well. And these two accounts are so similar, but they're so different. 
They contain a very similar question and a very similar answer from Jesus. Jesus says, okay, listen, you you lack this one thing, do this. And then to this other guy, he says, you're almost there. Both of them were almost there. But they had two very different responses. One got sick to his stomach and he left. And the other one probably got goosebumps. You see, only one of them could see that there was a trap, a religious trap that said, you must do more, do more and do better, and you will get there. Only one of them saw that trap. Okay, now let's go back to North America where we started. Here's my question. What's your attitude toward money? What's your attitude toward stuff? What's your attitude toward the security that it brings? I don't think it's any accident that for every one time that Jesus warns us about building our lives upon the family, ten times he warns us about building our lives upon money, about building our lives upon security. Money and security have always been our common enemy. There's nothing wrong. It is not evil. Money, it's not evil. The prosperity is not evil. But it has always been our most common replacement for God. Because with money and power and influence, with the luxuries we get in North America as among the richest in the entire world, we can largely do what we want, when we want, buy what we want, and we can buy it how we want it, order it how we want it. So here's a question. How can we honestly tell if money is just money to us or if money is our Savior? So here's some ways we can tell. Can we give large amounts of it away? Do we get scared if we might have less than we used to? When we come across someone who might have more than us, even though we have worked harder and maybe we are a better person than they are, does that just not set right with us? And if any of that happens, then we've got one foot squarely in the trap and we're in danger of wealth and money and security and prosperity no longer just being a tool for us to use in this life, but it becomes a savior. It becomes our identity. It becomes our center. And no matter how much we might have, it is not money that is evil. Money has no power to divert us from God. Remember how Jesus responded to this powerful kid? Here's what he said. I told you we'd come back to it. Looking at the man, this is the young man again, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Why might Jesus have that connection with that young man? Why does Jesus make such a significant connection with him? Why are we told about that connection? This one person, this one kid, why does Jesus have this kind and compassionate response to him in his heart? And all I can think of is that maybe, just maybe, 
Jesus identifies on some level with this young man, on some deep, deep, heartfelt level. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, has already lived with the most wealth, with the most inheritance, with the most glory imaginable. Jesus has existed in a king's wealth, a king's glory, a king's love from all eternity as Jesus has been connected to God the Father and God the Spirit. And Jesus left all of that wealth behind when he came to earth. Paul tells us about that. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he can make you rich. And Jesus is about to go into a poverty that's the deepest poverty ever known to anyone ever. He is going to give it all away, and he's doing it for you, and he's doing it for me. Which is why. He says over and over and over again, he's just saying, if you want to follow him, that we too must be willing to give it all away. Because Jesus gave it all away to get you. He now demands that you be willing to give it all away to follow him. And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. But we have such a hard time understanding this in America. You see, ultimately, it appears that Jesus is the ultimate rich, young ruler. He is the king of all kings who has given it all away. He's given away his ultimate wealth so that he could get you. And now he's asking you and asking this young man, are you willing? to give it away so you can get him. And if you understand Jesus as the ultimate rich young ruler, it will perhaps, the the rich young ruler who did give it all away, it will change everything that we know and that we feel about money and power and prestige and security and all the things that we now in America want more than we want God. And if we'll embrace this concept, we won't be figuring out how much we can afford to give away and still live the lifestyle that we have and do the things we want to do. How much we can give away and still keep our lives the same. According to Jesus, I believe we will be figuring out how much we can give away. Because the real standard of generosity is no longer how much do we have in reserve. Our new standard becomes the cross of Jesus. And when we get to that point, Jesus ain't all right, now he's, he's your savior, not your money. He's your hope, not your money. He is your lifelong safety and security, not what you have developed. And all of those things that are in our lives then simply become tools for us to love God. They're now worship tools. And the cross is now the standard. 
And now suddenly we're able, if he says give something, we can give it. If he says hang on to it because I have another idea, we hang on to it. Because he's our savior. Trusting completely upon him and whatever he says is good at that time. And do you know what getting to that point in our lives in America is? Do you know what that is? It's a miracle. Exactly what Jesus described. It's a miracle. It is something that only he can do. It's a change that ultimately only he can make. In fact, if it were up to me, yeah, it would be impossible. I couldn't do it. But Jesus said, for God, anything is possible. We're not alone. We've been relying upon money and security and power to save us since the beginning of time. Which I hope better explains how we began this morning. Because I believe Jesus is saying this. My power... And always my power and my gospel are always moving away from people who love power and money. And instead, my power and my gospel always moves toward people who are giving it away as I did. So the question is this morning, where do you want to live? And the question for me, where do I want to live? Question for all of us, where do we want to live? Because even though the gospel and the center of Christianity seems to be leaving this country, and it's in a position where we probably will never stop it. So the question is not where do we want our country to live? The question is, where do you want to live? Because the center of the gospel does not have to leave you. This morning, we're going to end differently. I'm just simply going to pray for us. And then we're done today. Because if you're anything like me, we have a lot to think about. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you have not given up on us. Thank you that what is impossible for us, God, is not impossible for you. Thank you. Thank you that we can come to the place in our lives where we trust you. And you alone. Help us to get to that point. And help us to have many conversations with you, Jesus, this week through your spirit. Speak to us, please. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.